0: Church, this morning let's begin with a prayer heavenly father we thank you for all your gifts to us we thank you father for jesus christ our lord we thank you for his death and resurrection for our sins and for our justification we thank you that salvation is by grace through faith not of works we thank you for your word we thank you for the gospel of john we thank you for one another we ask this morning, father in particular that you Watch over the whole body of Christ, in particular those who are in situations of difficulty, persecution. We thank you, Father, for the ability to still worship freely here in the United States. We understand that so many don't have that freedom, and we just pray for them. We ask the Holy Spirit to continue to guide us in terms of how we can help with the missionary activity, both in this country and in other countries. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen okay scheduling note summer vacation will be august 22nd to the 30th that's uh no that means there's no services that week thursday evening the 25th of august or sunday the 28th of august and as a reminder please keep our missionaries in prayer as well as the congregations that face persecution in particular today um, pastor kingsley has asked us to keep praying for the people of trinidad um it's a dynamic nation but it's also a nation full of apostasy and unbelief and so uh, and in the midst of that also some fantastic christians so we ask you to keep that the people of trinidad in prayer and also as we have been please keep the people of ukraine in prayer also as well as the other missionary organizations and and locations that we support all right let's begin now we're gospel of john today we'll start chapter 11 Today will be an introduction and we'll start it in uh, our line by line, verse by verse next week. Um, So so we will start today here in John chapter 11, starting in verse one. I'll read the passage. But again, this will be an overview today and we'll dive into the verse by verse next week. John chapter 11, verses one through 16. Now, a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the son of god may be glorified by it now jesus loved martha and her sister and lazarus so when he heard that he was sick he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was then after this he said to his disciples let us go to judea again the disciples said to him rabbi the jews were just now seeking to stone you and are you going there again Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may waken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus, Said to his fellow disciples, "Let us also go, so that we may die with him." Chapters eleven and twelve describe the final weeks of our Lord's public ministry. As we saw last last week, chapter ten ends the the, the section of the Gospel of John where Jesus and the Jews, the chief priests and the Pharisees, um, have Conflict after conflict where the temperature keeps getting raised in terms of the anger of the of the Jewish leaders towards Jesus, towards Jesus's claims, towards his effect on people. And then that ends with Jesus making one last plea to the leaders now, not to all the people. We'll see that he will have more. He will have a incredible miracle that will speak and entice people to believe in him. Okay, and then he will give everybody in the, in the city of Jerusalem who's gathered for the Passover one more opportunity in chapter 12. But in chapter 10, this is when the leadership finally rejects him outright. And because with the, as the leadership goes, so goes the nation. At that point, the destiny of the nation as a whole was set. Although individuals will have another opportunity, Jewish individuals, to believe in him before he goes to the cross, before his public ministry is over. Because Before, as it were, it becomes darkness because the light of the world is taken from them. After chapter 12, there's a, there's a clean break. The public ministry, which was primarily to the nation of Israel, is done. Jesus then retreats, as it were, to the upper room the night before. He's going to go to the cross, and there he teaches his disciples things that have never been revealed before. Um, a preview of the magnificence of the church age. And then after that, in chapters 18 and 19, we see the trials of Christ. We see the crucifixion. And then in chapter 20, we see the resurrection from the dead. And then the, what comes after that in chapters 21, chapter, the end of chapter 20 and chapter 21. So that's where we are. We're right here in a, in a period of time, pretty collapsed, probably just a few months where Jesus Christ has the end of his public ministry in this period of time. He has two retreats, one we've already seen, the place where John had baptized, the other side of the Jordan. And then once again, after this tremendous miracle that he performs, raising Lazarus from the dead, after he'd been dead for four days, he then has another place he goes to for a while. And then he goes back into Jerusalem. But before he goes back for the last time here today, he's going to Bethany, which is in Judea, but it's outside of Jerusalem. I think that's important to understand that that uh, Jesus last miracle was outside Jerusalem. He had two prior miracles that he performed in Jerusalem. The first one was when he healed a paralytic back in chapter five. And that 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 turned into a tremendous conflict. It was the first time that the Jewish leaders got to the point where they were ready to kill him. His second great miracle sign that he performed in Jerusalem was in chapter 9, when he, he gave the sight to a man who was born blind, an unprecedented thing. Once again, it ends with conflict, this time more with the man that Jesus cured than with Jesus himself, although at the end of chapter 10, he then, uh, he then confronts the chief priests and the scribes there. I mean, the chief priests and the uh, Pharisees. And then in chapter 10, there's that fantastic chapter talking about Jesus as the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep and brings life to his sheep and knows his sheep and they know him. And he gives them eternal life and nothing can ever take his believing sheep out of his hands or the hands of his father. Okay. So here we are today at the beginning of chapter 11. As I mentioned, we're going to look at it in the big picture today, and we're going to see that what's been building for some time now will reach a dramatic climax. Chapters 11 and 12 are climactic. They're raising things to their highest level in terms of his public ministry, both good and bad. It's the it's the high point of his miraculous activity. It's the greatest sign. Raising somebody from the dead who had been dead for four days. So that comes to that peak. But at the same time, the the anger, the hostility, the animosity that Jesus faces from the leadership in Jerusalem also comes to a peak. And that will have, of course, deadly circumstances for his consequences for him. But it will also be the way in which he's glorified, the way in which he will, of course, save the world the Lamb of God. And as I mentioned already this morning, and I think it's it's, a, it's something that most of us have been familiar with for a long time, this, this raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's his greatest miracle. He raises a man called Lazarus. By the way, I just want to point this out. I don't know if you noticed when I read the passage this morning, but it's interesting that um, Mary and Martha sort of get Get top billing in that family, and Lazarus comes last. So that's kind of interesting. The reason for that is that earlier in another gospel, um, earlier on in Jesus' ministry, he had come also to Bethany, and he stayed there. And it was a time when when Martha was getting really worked up about making sure everything was perfect, and Mary, the sister, was just hanging out with the Lord. And the Lord said something that to, to Martha was shocking, which was she's got the better deal right now all right she has chosen the better thing so this is this is a follow-on to that in terms of the chronology in any event jesus is about in chapter 11 he is going to raise lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for four days the greatest miracle the most amazing miracle of all and as a result of this miracle a great number of people come to believe in jesus that's another thing that reaches its peak, at least in Judea. And you can imagine that, that why that would be. I mean, I mean, anybody who was there, who watched Jesus come to the tomb of a man who had been dead for four days, command him to come forth, and the man comes forth in, in his grave clothing. I mean, that's astounding. I mean, if there's one thing that would, I think, get somebody to pay attention to the person of Christ, it would be that and it did i mean for for men most of the people a uh, large majority of the people that that witnessed it directly came to believe in jesus not only that but they, but then they went out and they and they proclaimed what had happened and then in chapter 12 there's a meal where lazarus is present and all kinds of people saw him alive and so this was just an amazing thing and many many people came to believe some didn't And they reported this to the leadership, and that's what put them over the edge. And by the way, it's interesting, too, that they never denied that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. As a matter of fact, they never denied the miracles, any of them. They never said this didn't happen. They always found something else. Usually it was, well, he's blaspheming. Well, he did this on the Sabbath. They never actually declared that this didn't happen. It's very interesting. It tells you more about the mentality of the leadership, that they knew full well who he was. But they also they also saw that as a threat to their own power, as they perceived it, a threat to the independence of their people. And so they, despite knowing who he is, that the hatred that they had, the blindness that they had, caused him them ultimately to have him put on trial where he would be found guilty and be sentenced to die. So again, he raises Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four years. A great number of people as a result of that come to believe in Jesus. But at the same time, the animosity of the chief priests and Pharisees also comes to a full boil. All right, They've, they've had it. We'll see that when we get to um, the end of chapter 11. Then a the great moment, the climactic moment arrives in chapter 12. Jesus will then enter Jerusalem. And when he does, great crowds will gather with palm branches and they will proclaim him the king of Israel. Now, until, until now, okay, Jesus, remember, had said several times, my hour has not yet come. He said that in particular, when when the jewish leaders wanted to kill him he says you know my hour has not yet come well in chapter 12 he is going to say that his hour has come and then he publicly declares that he's going to glorify his father by dying on the cross and he makes his last urgent appeal for the people in the city of jerusalem to believe in him before darkness falls and he's no longer with them and he tells them that a judgment is coming and the stakes of that judgment are infinite. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is the seventh and final miracle that John records. By the way, those seven are just carefully selected to, to, to bring out the different aspects of who the Lord Jesus is. By no means does that represent All or even most of the miracles that Jesus performed. There are more miracles that are documented by Matthew, Mark and Luke. In fact, they have more than John does. And then on top of that, John says in more than one place that he did lots and lots and lots of miracles. Okay, that just tells you that. That these that we see in the Gospel of John, we should pay attention to because there's a special message. Remember a sign. we will see this again at the end. A sign in John does not just mean a miracle. It means a miracle with a message. And we'll see more about the message today and as we go forward. So, again, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is the seventh and final and most spectacular of all. And it is a very public event. Remember, we saw early on that several of the miracles that Jesus performed were essentially private. For example, when when um, he had gone to, to Cana, after he'd done the miracle of changing the water into wine, there was a royal official that came to him and said, my son is near death. And then Jesus said, go and go and see your son. And he did. And on the way um, back, he was was messengers from his home came to him and said your son has been healed that was private right in two respects one jesus didn't even see it directly i mean in his his divine knowledge he did but not only that but none of the people that he had spoke those words to had seen the miracle either that's private but now you know when when he comes to bethany when he comes to the tomb of lazarus and he performs that miracle there are a lot of people around I mean, this family was prominent. There were hundreds of people there to mourn with Martha and Mary. Many of them had come from Jerusalem to be there with them. Very public. It's his last one. It's his most public one, and because of that, the 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 the, the, the things that happen are magnified. The the, the 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 greatness of faith that is poured out on the basis of this great miracle, and the and the rage that pours out of the the blackened hearts of the leadership all because of this seventh and final and and most amazing miracle of all. Now, this wasn't the only time that Jesus raised somebody from the dead, by the way. He had done it before, but never had anyone ever been raised from the dead who had been dead for four days. Now you might ask a question. Why does John tell us that it had been four days? Why does he quote Martha, who de- declared that he's been dead for four days? Well, the reason is, is because of what happens to the corpse by four day, by the fourth day. That's what's significant about it. Um, this wasn't just, by the way, uh, some people think that this was just a tradition among the Jews but in fact, it, has a, it actually has a medical basis. I, I, did, I checked out um, forensic pathologists, if you know, those are the people that um, in cases of a crime being committed, you know, they do an autopsy and so forth. Well, they say, and they're experts now, they say that my mouse is lost. There we go. They say that the internal organs start to decompose anywhere from 24 to, interestingly, 72 hours after death that's between one and three days so in other words he was as dead as dead could be by day four by day four there was a tradition among the jews of that time that there was a possibility that the soul could come back within three days of death okay so in every way you look at it whether it's the traditions of the Jews, who would, of course, bury their, their dead as quickly as possible to prevent the onset uh, you know, of, of the corruption of the body um, in, in view of anybody. And then there's the medical evidence, too, that after three days, the internal organs start to decompose. And there's, even if you could, there'd be no way naturally um, for that body to work anymore. So that's why four days. But again, I I mentioned that there's no other record in the Bible okay, of this ever being done, of anybody raising somebody from the dead after they'd been dead for four days. Just like the sixth sixth miracle when he gave sight to the man born blind. Remember, we looked back throughout all the Bible to see if if that miracle had ever been performed and it never had been, never before, never since. So therefore, there is no record in the same way in the Bible of any person. I say that meaning human. Jesus, by the way, is both human and God, which you see both of these to an amazing degree during the miracle, during the, the narrative that John gives us of the miracle of the raising of Lazarus. Well, in the whole Bible, okay, other than God, right, because some of you probably know what happened after Jesus died on the cross. There was an earthquake and it is is said that the benefit of the dead in the tombs came out of them in Jerusalem, but there was no miracle worker saying, now you shall come out. That was directly a miracle that God performed, but there's no record in the Bible of a person, a human ever bringing a person back from the dead who had been dead for four days. Now, why do I emphasize this? Because I want you to understand why we say this is the greatest miracle of all. Okay. This is because it's never been done, and not only that, but it represents a victory over the over the most dreaded, feared thing in human experience, which is death. So it's the greatest miracle of all. But I want to illustrate what I mean by saying it's never been done. Not even in the Old Testament. Not even Jesus, by the way. He had he had he had raised others from the dead, but never after they were dead four days. So I want to illustrate this to you and the difference between the other raisings and what Jesus did with Lazarus. I'm going to give you two examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. I'd like you to turn now to First Kings way back in First Kings. I'll give you a moment to get there. First Kings is a very intricate, detailed record, historical record of the kings, starting with David and following on all the way through to when the Jews, the nation of Judah, is put into exile. So it's a several hundred year period. Now, during that period, there were two great prophets, two of them, Elijah and Elisha. Okay, they were the ones that performed the miracles okay i mean moses did but in terms of the time of the prophets they're the prophets that performed the miracles they were the first and it's very interesting how we see that again and again miracles are associated with big changes in the history of god's saving plan for mankind i mean i mean if you if you think about the miracle for example of moses the miracles of moses well what was that that was at the beginning of the nation of israel okay The miracles of Elijah and Elisha, the beginning of the prophets, the miracles of Jesus, right? Building up to the greatest of all things is death and resurrection. The miracles of of the apostles ushering in the transition from a Jewish centered church to a Gentile and Jewish church. So it's always at the beginning of something new in God's plan that we see the miracles. And indeed, there were miracles in the Old Testament, many of them, some of them. Who of course, performed as I'm going to show you in the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Well, we're in First Kings 17. It's during the time when Elijah was was the prophet who was on the scene. So let's read First Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. In other words, he died. So the widow said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. What is she saying? Well, she's saying a kind of similar thing, by the way, to the disciples said to Jesus back in chapter nine. Recall when they when they passed by the man born blind. What was the question that the disciples asked Jesus? Do you remember? Who sinned, right? Him or his parents? That's the same thinking that the widow has here. My son has died. Then what is happening is I'm being punished for my iniquities. Again, so she said to Elijah in verse 18, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and he said, oh, Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? By the way, this is the same thing that Jesus does. We're going to see this in chapter 11. It's a little different. But he also prays to his father really more in in praising him because of his glory about to be displayed. But in any event, there's that same moment when Jesus goes to the father, as we have here with Elijah going to the Lord. Verse 21, then he stretched himself upon the child three times and he called to the Lord and he said, "O Lord, my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth a miracle, it's a sign. The sign is a miracle with a message. Hear the message that came to the woman in realizing who I, Elijah is and the fact that he was a prophet speaking the words that God had given him. In chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, we're going to see something similar. That, that at the end of the day, of course, the raising of Lazarus is also a great. the greatest sign in John's Gospel. And in the same way, it has a message So here, the message had to do with the identity of the prophet in chapter 11. The message of the miracle has to do with the identity of the son of man and the son of God. So we'll see that a little bit today and more when we do the verse by verse study. Okay, so what do we have here? We have a great miracle. A great miracle. Again, it takes place during the public ministry of the prophet Elijah. Now, clearly, this miracle was, I mean, this was a miracle of of raising him. Let me start again. This is clearly a miracle of raising the dead, right? The child had no breath left in him. The mother says he died because of my sins. Elijah prays to the Lord that he be brought back from the dead. And he is brought back. It is clearly a miracle. Clearly, Elijah raised the dead. The child's life returned to him. However, However, the son had been dead for a very short time, very short, perhaps even less than an hour. OK, so in other words, the, the child died. Then Elijah came in and took the child upstairs. I think about the amount of time that it would take. All right. Maybe it was maybe five minutes till the woman could, you know, gather herself and her thoughts together and went to Elijah. Okay, But she was a very organized woman, a very thoughtful woman so it probably didn't take too long elijah comes he walks upstairs all right and he and he performs and he prays and boom the child is alive again so probably less than an hour compare that with four days all right there's no comparison there's no comparison that's the point i want you to see well we're going to see a second illustration and we're going to go to the gospel of luke Let's go to the Gospel of Luke now, chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 11. We're going to read from verse 11 to verse 17. Again, this is a New Testament illustration of somebody being raised from the dead. This time, it's the Lord Jesus who performs this miracle. Again, I had said that, this, that the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead was not the first time that Jesus had raised somebody from the dead. But it, we're going to see the difference once again. It's the same thing that I pointed out to you with Elijah and the widow's son. All right, let's read it. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him. Accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city. A dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her. He felt compassion for her. And said to her. Do not weep. And he came up. And he touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. By the way, can you see the parallels with the with the miracle we just (laughs) read about with Elijah? There are also great parallels to the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Okay, one of the things here that we see the great compassion that the Lord felt for this woman, we're going to see that again. With the compassion that Jesus had for Martha and Mary, here this was a very public miracle—a large crowd, just like the Lazarus coming forth was a very public miracle. Okay, so again, fifteen, the dead man sat up and began to speak. That must have been surprising. You know, when I when I um, when I preach at funerals, I, I sometimes come to this passage, and the reason is, is because it it shows you. Who Jesus is. And it shows you the fact that Jesus would not let death have the last word in his presence. Okay. But it must have been an incredible shock to everybody else. Because then I also say sometimes at funerals, don't expect that to happen today. Okay. (laughs) Because it's a miracle, obviously. Dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Verse 6. Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Again, the miracle has a message. It points out something about the identity of Jesus here in chapter 7. Of course, they may have been reflecting, those of them who were scriptural, on the fact that the last time this had happened, it was also a prophet. So they didn't go as far as the fullness of understanding who Jesus was, but they recognized that he was a great prophet. Just like in chapter nine, the man who had born blind said the same thing about Jesus. He's a prophet. Verse 17, this report concerning him went out over all Judea and in all the surrounding district, just like it's going to happen when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So there's a lot of similarities. It's an amazing miracle. Jesus basically interrupted a funeral procession. The dead man was already in his coffin, but he hadn't yet been buried. Now, it was the custom of the Jews of that time and today, for Orthodox Jews, to bury their dead very soon after their death, as soon as they possibly could, right? Subject to the preparation and and having a time of grieving, typically within a day or less. Typically, it was if somebody died during the day, the days of the hours of sunlight, they would be buried before sundown, for example. It was very soon after the death of a person, they would bury him or her in order to have them buried before the body started to decay at all. So the man here again, the man had been dead for only a short time, certainly less than 24 hours. So when Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb after four days that he was dead, it was unprecedented, clearly the greatest sign miracle of them all. Taking a man who had been dead four days and bringing him back to life, to life. Life is a uh, a feature of the gospel of John more so than any other gospel, perhaps more so than any other book. I mean, if you look at the miracles that he performs, all of them lead to fuller life in some manner or fashion. Right. Sometimes directly, as we have here. All right. Not only that, but the things that Jesus says about himself, they all lead into the idea of life. I am the bread of life. Right. I am the light of the world. And we found out already that Jesus was the life and the life was the light. So again and again and again, we see this forward progress, the end of which is life. Of course, we'll see that in its greatest manifestation. I mean, this is pretty great. But the greatest one, of course, is when Jesus himself dies. And on the third day, the father raises him from the dead to new life. And Jesus over and over again would would say that I've come to bring them life. You believe in me and you'll have eternal life. We'll see these passages today. In other words, the gospel of John is brimming with life from start to finish. We'll see that. In fact, it's not too much to say that the gospel of John is the gospel of life. Recall the purpose now. Look at let's go back. We've seen this passage, of course, a lot. I want to just see it again today in, in, in connection with this idea that the gospel of John is ultimately about life and also life out of death. Look at John chapter 20, verse 30, when John tells us the whole purpose behind the signs that he's recorded in this gospel. John chapter 20, verse 30. In verse 30, we're going to see that John here even says that there's a lot more that Jesus did in terms of miraculous signs. John 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. You know, that's another thing. If you look at each of the miracles, the disciples were with Jesus, present with him when they occurred. That's significant. We're going to see why we're going to see that Jesus is going to tell the disciple. Well, we saw it today. He says, you know, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad so that you may believe. That was why that was why the disciples among all them, because they were going to be the ones who would be the witnesses of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, the witnesses of that who he is, the Messiah, the son of God. They had to be so rooted and grounded in these things that that the disciples were always with Jesus when he performed these miracles. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these have been written. By the way, these things are not simply the miracles. We saw that his work was a lot more than the miracles. So he's talking about the things that he documented about the life of Jesus, his works and his words. Why did he write these things? Why did he select these things for a purpose? And he says that purpose in verse 31. These have been written so that for the purpose of so that you may believe that Jesus is. Notice it's an identity thing. I keep emphasizing that. The miracles of recorded in the Gospel of John are not haphazard. It's not just the narrative, this he did and this he did. It's they were selected for a purpose. What's the purpose? So that you, the reader now, may believe that Jesus is who he says he is. The Christ, the Son of God. That was the objective, the immediate objective. Of John recording these things so you may know Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and then what does that lead to And that believing leads to what believing that you may let me start again these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God now what's so amazing great what's so great about that and that believing you may have what life eternal life in his name The gospel of John is the gospel of life. It's brimming with life and everything leads ultimately to life. I say ultimately because he recall in chapter 11, we read this morning, the fact that Jesus said that this sickness will not end in death. It won't be the final chapter of this man's life. So even when death is on the scene, it's never the final event. There's always what it leads to. The death of Christ led to his resurrection and the death of Christ led to the fact that he would now, as having been the one perfect sacrifice for sins, would give an opportunity for everyone who believed to have eternal, magnificent, perfect life, the same life that God has. But from the very beginning of the gospel, from the very beginning that records the beginning before the beginning of creation, we had the word, the word of God. Let's go to John chapter one, verse one, to see what what John records about the word. OK, now we know. I hope we know by now that the word made flesh is Jesus. OK, but of course, in eternity past, he's the son of God. Okay, But what does it say? What does John at the very beginning say in terms of the identity of? of this person who is the word of God and the son of God. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning. Was the word. And again, this is a beginning way before the creation of the heavens and the earth. Really isn't a beginning. It's just as far back as the human mind can even conceive before that. Right way before Genesis one one. OK, this is talking about the, the Godhead. This is talking about the three persons of the Trinity, father, son and spirit before the foundation of the world from the very beginning. In the beginning was the word he always was. That's why Jesus would say that's at one point in chapter eight before Abraham was I am the very title. I am is a title of this the eternity of God and the word, as we can see in a moment is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. I love that because it's saying here's the word, here's the God. There's two people there. Of course, we're going to find out that the word is God. So the only way this can be is if there's more than one person in the Godhead, right? And of course there are. Old Testament reveals all three actually, but here we have the Father and the Son. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. From eternity past, God the Son and God the Father were together. We see that, of course, playing out in the humanity of Christ, because as he was here in his public ministry, he never stopped being God. But at the same time, he recognized the fact that he would do nothing other than what the Father told him to do, (laughs) that he and the Father were one, united in every aspect. Okay. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. All things. This is things in the heavens, things in the on the earth, things under the earth, angels, principalities, all the stars. All things came into being through the word. In other words, the son of God, Jesus Christ now has been revealed as created all things. He's the creator. He demonstrated that several to several of his miracles. I mean, walking on walking on water is a pretty good demonstration that you're sovereign over nature. Turning water into wine is very similar in that respect. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, the word Christ, nothing came into being that has come into being. Of course, that's a great description of God. And now we know that Jesus is God, Okay, the son of God. These are the the big, big, big picture things about God. Always existed in the form of father, son, and spirit. He was in the beginning. From the very beginning, the son and, and the father existed together. Everything that was created was created through Christ. So God created everything. Big, big, big stuff now what comes next in verse four in the word in him was life life so not only do we have the creator we have this this pure unadulterated perfect life that was always in christ that always was christ as he will say in john 14 you say i am the way and the truth and the life you're not saying I'm alive. He's saying life itself. Gospel of John is brimming with life. And ultimately, we get sure. We have a miracle where a man comes back from the dead and is given human life. But that's just a preview. That's actually as amazing as that miracle is. Again, it is a sign pointing to something even more incredible, which is the giving of eternal life to fallen creatures. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Notice that connection. I mean, the prologue is just amazing. It's incredible. That's why you want to keep going back to it. That's why you should definitely, as I've encouraged you to do, and as I've tried to do, read the gospel from start to finish, and then come right back around, because now you start to see, wait a minute, everything that played out in the life of Jesus is captured in the prologue, right? The light. I mean, he'll say, I'm the light of the world. Now, that's what that's when he is in the world. The word word made flesh. But that light is far more. It's talking about life itself. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus will always shine. However, there are those in the darkness who will never come to terms with the light. Right, that's the tragedy part of humanity and of the Gospel of John. And he would say that over and over again. He would say that, yes, um, the light is here, but some men prefer the darkness. Right? He'll talk at the end of chapter 12 about the fact that darkness is coming. He tells his disciples, he says, listen, while it is day, while the sun is out, we ought to work because night will fall where no work is possible. When I leave, there will be a period of time when everything stops, okay, it will have been, again, the last time that the Jews of that period of time would have an opportunity to have that life. Light was life. The Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend life. Not only is Jesus life itself, but then when we see him being revealed, he always starts with something that the people can understand, like bread or water, and then takes it to that level of life. We saw for example that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He took the miracle of taking those 5 loaves and having it having it feed 5000 and then he extends that. He's saying, I know I know you think that's amazing, but actually I am life itself and who I really am when you want to think about bread coming down from heaven, that's who I really am. Only I'm here now to give you eternal life. I'm the bread of full, complete, amazing life. He said the same thing to the woman at the well. I have water that you drink it and you will never have to be thirsty again. It's the, it's the wellspring of eternal life. The Gospel of John is just brimming with life. Jesus says the words that he speaks. What am I saying? I'm saying that it, he, is, he is drawing from who he is and he is extending that out to human beings so that they can grasp more and more fully who he is. We get nervous sometimes when, well, I do, I did, when Jesus seems to be holding back who he is. In other words, he doesn't come right out at the beginning and say, here's who I am. I'm the Christ. I'm the son of God. You have to believe. Right. He doesn't do that. I mean, he, he, he brings people along in a most magnificent way. You know, at that, that first they might say he's a prophet. They may wonder if he's the Messiah. It's not really until the end after Jesus is risen from the dead that we have from the mouths of one of his disciples who he is in terms of the son of God. He's the water of life. The very words that he speaks are what? Well, let's look. John chapter six, verse sixty three. He's bringing people along. Today, for us, when we ask the question, where do, where do we get life from? Well, from the very beginning, where do we get life from? I'm t- in terms of Christian spiritual life. It was the word, wasn't it? Hearing the message of truth, having believed, we were saved. The word. The, the word of God is living alive, the book of Hebrews says. So he's saying that this life that I am, you can receive it through the very words that I speak, our life itself. Look at John chapter six, verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. Life, the flesh profits nothing. The very words I have spoken to you, are spirit and our life. What, I mean, oh, yeah, we use this. We read it over and over again. But I want you to step back and put yourself in the shoes Um, Say a disciple or say somebody who witnessed the miracle of the five thousand feeding the five thousand and wonders who this person is. And he said some shocking things about the fact that you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And a lot of people didn't want to hear that. Those were words. But what do they represent? Spirit and life. The very words. Nobody else. You can say that really nobody else. That that when, when somebody speaks, it's life itself. Right? other than God and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The very words that he speaks point to his, the life that he is. Not only that, but the reason that he came. The reason that he came. Again, he's, he says, there's a reason I came. You're seeing how there are some who wanted to destroy and kill their children of, of, of the devil. That's not me. I'm the good shepherd. What happens? John chapter 10, verse 10. Go forward to John 10, 10. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. Well, what does that mean? What does that lead to? Well, first, at a human level, he talks about the fact that he's the door and people can come in and out and find pasture. Well, of course, in the, in the natural world, when a sheep finds pasture and water, it sustains his, his physical life. But then Jesus stretches that out and says, listen, look at John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy there are thieves in the world On a spiritual level okay this is also true there are thieves there are those who try to rob you of your happiness rob people of salvation their words too are powerful in a sense i mean that's how that's how the false teachers get people to fall into into the slavery of false teaching their words right I mean, very seldom, sometimes in the cults, but very seldom does somebody capture you and imprison you. Right. It's not that. It's words. It's false teaching by the thieves and those who steal, the ones who want to put people in bondage to their remembrance of their sins or to guilt or to you have to do these works in order to be pleasing to God. Right. Or you could lose your salvation. I mean, these are all words, but they're words of theft to steal your joy, to steal your sense of security. Some people are like that. They're thieves. Chief priests were thieves. And we saw the Pharisees were thieves. They were thieves in the natural realm. They would take widows' fortunes. They were thieves. But also, even more importantly, they were were thieves and murderers in a spiritual world. The world they were supposed to be looking after. False shepherds. But how about Jesus? I came that they may have here we are again, life and have it abundantly. So so again, over and over again, he's stretching out. He's saying, You understand that they're murderers, you understand that the shepherd's job is to protect the life of the sheep. I have come for my sheep, okay, believers, that they may have life, but it's a it's a unique life. Then he goes on, have it abundantly, right? This is not this is not talking about being in good shape. This is talking about eternal life. Whoever believes in Christ has eternal life. The gospel of John brimming with life. Let's now go to chapter 11, which we started this morning as we close. John chapter 11, verse 25. Look what he's going to tell Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Right before he he calls Lazarus forth from the tomb, John 11, 25 to 26, Jesus said to her, Martha, I am. There's that I am. I have existed from all of eternity. And now he brings it into the realm of humanity and why he came was to bring life. And then he says essentially what John 1, 4 says, I am the resurrection and the life. I want you to know that there's something added here. At the very beginning, we have the son of God and he is life itself. Now we have him here among fallen men. And he adds, I am the resurrection. What does that mean? It means when man fell, death entered the world. So now in order to restore this life, you first have to have resurrection. All right. And so and that is God's solution. That is God's solution to death itself is to have his only son die for the things that caused us to die, which is sin, and then be raised from the dead so that the the doors are open to eternal life. And that's what he says. He who believes in me again in verse 25, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's the story of the Gospel of John. Yes, Lazarus is going to die. As a matter of fact, you can't be in a well, you could, but he's in a tomb four days. He died, but that wasn't the end of the story, right? Everyone who believes in me will live, even if he dies first, right? Not most people will die first. Rapture generation won't. There will be a generation. A lot of us think maybe we're in it. I don't know, but it could be. That won't die. We just. Phew, but, but the large, large majority of believers die. But that's not the end, right? We'll live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes, let the little children come to Jesus. Death is cruel. It's an enemy, it is the enemy, one of them. It's dreadful, it's determined, it's relentless, it's fearsome, it's a foe of mankind. You know, we use the expression cheating death, right? I, they cheated death, what does that mean? Well, it might mean somebody had cancer and recovered. It might be that there was a car accident and somehow you survived, cheated death. That's pretty amazing in one respect, it's good, it's, a, it's awesome. But then when you think about the idea of defeating death, well, that's another thing entirely. Now, what if we go a step beyond defeating death and we find out that somebody eliminates death for all time? Wow. So you go from what we understand in the natural realm of cheating death. what we understand we've seen miracles, that defeated death in, the, in the, the ministry of Jesus. But what about the ultimate? What about the next level? What about eliminating? Is that possible? Can we conceive in our humanity of death being eliminated for all time? That's unimaginable. That's an unimaginable victory. That's a victory of infinite proportions. Yet this is exactly what Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection. And this is where we'll end with that thought. That amazing truth that Jesus eliminated death for all time for the human race and actually in existence. And it all happened because he died and was raised from the dead. Let's look at Acts 2.22. This is the Apostle Peter who was in the upper room and saw all the miracles and, and Jesus rose from the dead and he's now empowered by the Holy Spirit. To preach to the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. Who had been gathered from every nation. They were Jewish though. Okay, But they had been gathered because of the Passover. This happened 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead. Thereabouts. A few days after that. Verse 22. Men of Israel. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. A man attested to you by God. With miracles. Here we are. and Wonders and signs. Which God performed through him. In your midst, you saw it, you heard about it, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, nothing escapes God. Everything happens because he says it will. It's all part of his plan, including you, including me, including our very lives. He knew us in eternity past. He chose us. He called us. He justified us, glorified us. Nothing is beyond the reach of God's plan. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But is death the final? Is it final? Absolutely not. But verse 24, but God raised him up again. Notice the next expression, though. Putting an end to the agony of death. That's not just for Jesus. That's for everybody who believes. He eliminates death, put an end to the agony of death itself, since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Look at Second Timothy chapter one verse ten. We're going to see some passages that say this. It's so amazing, and it's something we really need. Just like the disciples, Second Timothy one ten needed to see these things in order to be rooted and grounded in the truths about who Jesus is, in order for them to be witnesses, in order for them. To understand the life that they' had been received had received look at second Timothy 1:10. but now has been revealed okay this is the mystery of the gospel revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. notice the next expression though what who abolished death right? He abolished death now it's going to play out. All right. Right. We could say, well, right now people still die. Yes. As a matter of fact, people are still going to experience the second death. Yes. But it's not the last dance. It's not the last thing. There's an answer on the other side of that. We're going to see a passage in just a minute in first Corinthians that says exactly that points out exactly when death itself will be eliminated for all time. And it will. And it all stems from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought what life and immortality to light through the gospel. Words, right? Words reveal to us what that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to the human race. Look at Hebrews chapter two, verse fourteen. Hebrews two fourteen. Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. I heard a really corny joke about Hebrews that I'm not going to tell you. It's too corny. (laughs) All right. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share humanity of Jesus now in flesh and blood, he, the son of God himself, likewise also partook of the same. The word made flesh. Notice that through death, through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. What is that saying? Well, the devil had the power of death. When Jesus died on the cross, he rendered that powerless. That The power of death that Satan had is now powerless, meaning he doesn't have the power of death. And notice what happens, verse 15. It might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives That is a description of the human race without the message of the gospel, isn't it? If you don't if you don't understand that Jesus conquered death, then you will live in fear of it. And that fear will enslave you, not physically, but in terms of your outlook on life, in terms of your anticipation, in terms of how you behave, how you live, in terms of your fears. But that's all gone for those who, who understand the message of truth and believe it, that Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life because Jesus conquered death at the cross. All right, let's look at, let's go now to the most amazing passage of all on this subject, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to do, we're going to look at verses 22 to 26, and then we're going to hop forward to 54 to 55. And I want you to just drink this all in. I want you to see how stupendous the, what this tells us. Look at 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two. A couple of years ago, we studied the, this letter of 1 Corinthians. So some of this may be familiar to a lot of us. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two: <laughs> For as in Adam, all die. That's the tragedy of the human race. We're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ, believers, all will be what? Made alive, but each in his own order. Here we have the unfolding of the gift of eternal life in terms of its reception. <laughs> Demonstration. Christ, the first fruits, resurrection from the dead. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, rapture. Then comes the end. Notice this. He skips over a lot of things now. But, he, but the theme of life, okay, is laying out Christ first, those who are Christ, then the end. When he noticed, this is the end, the real, like we talked about the beginning. This is the end in terms of human history now. Why? He's handing over the kingdom. What's that? Jesus has already been ruling the kingdom and all of his enemies are subject to his, under his feet. And that's all done. He hands over the kingdom to the God and father. When he has abolished, notice this, all rule and all authority and all power For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And notice verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death itself. Death itself. And then at the end, let's go to the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verses 54 to 55. This is directly about us. Notice this. This is the rapture. Verse fifteen, uh, verse 54. But when this perishable, this body of death, will have put on the imperishable, resurrection body, and this mortal that can die will have put on immortality, life, pure life, amazing life, then will come about the saying, notice this, that is written, death itself swallowed up, in victory no more tears no more death death by the way will be thrown into the lake of fire itself oh death where is your victory this is the this is what jesus accomplished no more victory for death ultimately oh death where is your sting (coughs) all right let's quickly go to john 11 let's go back where we started just want to quickly introduce one more thing John 11, verse 3. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Another thing that comes pouring out of chapter 11 of the Gospel of John is the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus. We're going to see how this pours out again and again. And it's, it's really love for three groups. One, his friends. Okay, those Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Two, his disciples who are with him. But three, ultimately, ultimately, and most, most powerfully, love for his father. We're going to see how the love of Jesus is on display. And by the way, that full measure of love we're going to see revealed at, through suffering and death. We're going to see all of who Jesus is on display in chapter 11. It's human compassion, his divine power and glory. As he faces death, we're going to see the depths of his love. I'm talking about his friends, his disciples, and his father. Death will bring that out. And then at the end, we'll see his indestructible life triumphing over death. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for all that you've opened up our hearts to today. Some through the repetition. Others through just seeing things more clearly. Others through just marveling in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the... Amazing life that comes blossoming out of this gospel that everything ends in life. We thank you for that. Help us out to apply that to what Jesus Christ has done for us. And not only that, but the opportunity we have to share this with others through the message of truth, the gospel. We ask so all in the name of Jesus, our Lord, by the power of the spirit. Amen. All right, this wraps things up. We will gather again, either on person or in Skype. Thursday evening for a Bible study at 630. Hopefully a lot of you, all of you can join us at that time. Let's, All right, let's just close quickly for the service. Father, thank you for having us all together this morning to hear your word. And thank you, Father, that you've also shared the, the love of your son with us and that we get to love one another with that same love and help us to cooperate with that love this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.